With that, let us now turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 20. Once again, our passage today is Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Good morning, Renewal. Uh, it's an honor and privilege to preach the word this morning. My name is Luke Wu. I'm one of the pastors. And I'll be continuing our series in uh, the Gospel of Mark. And to begin, uh, I want to share a line that the famous essayist and writer Henry David Thoreau once wrote. He wrote a letter to his friend. He writes this. It is not enough to be industrious, so are the ants. What are you industrious about? Industrious meaning being busy and working very diligently and striving. And he wrote this because he was observing uh, the dangers of mindless striving without any kind of purpose. And when I say purpose, not just the purpose of having some kind of great success and result, but the purpose of knowing for whom you are striving. I remember when I worked in the corporate world, each morning as I walked into my little space in the corner, if I look at the cubicles, I see so many people with pictures of their loved ones, their spouses, their children. It helps them get through the day, doesn't it? Especially when they feel like they're mindlessly striving and toiling at work. It prevents that, that dark abyss of doing something just for the sake of doing something or doing things because that's just what you've always done which is a big no-no in the corporate world, right? But if you can make the work personal, meaning you have someone in mind, you have a face, then work, and actually all of life, can be very different. That danger of being in this abyss is even greater the longer you actually do something, the longer you've been at something, the more familiar you are with what you do, isn't it? And I don't think I'm too far off when I assume that many of you who are listening this morning, that you've been Christian, consider yourself a Christian for many years, or at the very least, you've been exposed to the tenets of Christianity, picking up things about the Christian religion along the way. Perhaps you've been exposed to church when you were young. And so because of this familiarity, it's very easy for us to be industrious in Christianity without it being personal. It's very easy for us to even evaluate our spiritual lives based on concepts, based on tasks, things such as repentance, righteousness, service, all the while not having the active, living person of Jesus in our hearts and our minds. 
And so even in this morning, we can walk away from this Sunday service being also convicted about truths and ideas and biblical concepts such as God's love and his forgiveness and his justice, things about Jesus, and not once be enamored with Jesus himself. And this is why I hope and I pray that in our time in the Gospel of Mark, that we will be able to bring the person of Jesus to the forefront, the forefront of our minds and our hearts, because Mark's Gospel declares, what, that the kingdom of heaven has arrived but it only has done so because the person, the king of that kingdom has arrived. So the entire gospel of Mark and all of this chapter, the first eight chapters, is going to portray who this king is. Who is this Jesus? And then starting from chapter 9 through 16, then it's going to focus on what this king has come to do. So as we just have begun our series in Mark, we are focusing on this person of Jesus. Who is this king? And that's what our passage this morning is going to center around, these two points. First, to know Jesus. That's the plea. Know Jesus. Know him. And secondly, know him because he knows you. It's pretty much our title for this morning. So two points. Know him Why? Because he knows you. So with that introduction, uh, join me as we pray one more time, asking the Lord uh, to really help us understand what he's trying to tell us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this gathered time of worship, that on a day like today where we celebrate mothers all around the world, Lord, we know it is out of your goodness and your love for us that we can see love in our mothers that have sacrificed so much for us and loved us and cared for us. And so, Lord, as we do remember them, we also remember the giver of good things and the giver of good people like our mothers. We thank you and praise you. And at the same time, we pray for those who have not had the experience of loving mothers. Lord, may they never think that they're lacking in any way because they have full access to you who portray all of the things that we've seen and experience in our mothers, compassion, love, care, sacrifice. So Lord, we pray that that message of the gospel that is available, Lord, may that be very true for every one of us listening today. As we look into your word, help us to not assume our own opinions or filter what we hear or what we read based on what we think is right, but may our hearts be laid open and ready for you to do surgery so that we can be more like Christ. That is our desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first, know him. You know, I think one of the most difficult topics to teach and probably to learn is writing. And one thing that's pounded into the students is the importance of a thesis statement. And whenever we do teach writing, and this thesis statement must be clear, must be concise, obvious, and reflective also of what the rest of your paper is going to be and what you're going to be arguing. Now, Jesus here in our passage, he gives us a thesis statement of what his entire ministry is going to be about. It's in verse 15. If you look with me, what does Jesus say in verse 15? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
he makes a declarative statement first. He says, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. He declares this. And then the imperative. So repent and believe in the gospel. And this summarizes the entire ministry of Jesus from here on out. Now, before we quickly move on, we need to camp out here because remember, a thesis statement is very important. It's going to make or break your paper. Because what Jesus is saying here hasn't been said before, especially if we pay attention to the context. It's pretty radical. You see, in verse 14, we read that John the Baptist was arrested. Now, I think that's important. And that phrase, it kind of sticks out because right before that phrase, what do we read about? Last week, we read about Jesus' baptism, right? And, and, and in the trials that he faced in the wilderness, And after this mentioning of John the Baptist, now we see Jesus calling the first disciples and beginning his official ministry. So sandwiched in between these two accounts of Jesus, we see a statement that John the Baptist was arrested. He's fading into the background. And now why? It's because our passage is drawing attention to now how John has played a transitory role and that his ministry of repentance also is a transitory role. As he fades into the background, now we see Jesus becoming prominent. Now, prior to Jesus, we see that John, he was the main character. You can say that he was the last messianic prophet preparing the way for Jesus. Now, what sums up John's ministry? He was all about preaching and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And now, with the coming of Jesus, he's fading away back, literally being arrested, because what John stood for, a baptism of repentance, it no longer stands on its own. It no longer stands by itself. It's transitory because now that the kingdom has come, repentance by itself is insufficient. So now when Jesus comes and John fades away, we no longer have repent like what John used to say. But now we have repent and believe in the gospel. See, this is in no way minimizing the importance of repentance. But what this is saying is that repentance by itself cannot save. John's baptism cannot save because what is repentance? Repentance quite literally means to turn away from something. But in order from For repentance to take its full effect, one needs to turn from something and then turn to something, someone, the gospel. And I don't think we need a theological degree to understand this because this is true in our day-to-day lives. If someone offends you, yes, that person should ask for forgiveness. He should repent and be sorry for the wrong that he did. But that relationship won't be healed with just that. He needs to move towards you. Restoration must take place. Trust needs to be reestablished. If I wrong my wife, I can't simply be sorry for the wrong that I did. Not only do I have to turn away from the wrongs, but also turn to her and love her. See, relationships, they're not simply about not making mistakes, right? But also engaging deeply with that person, turning to him or her. And this is why this thesis statement is radical. No longer is it repent and be sorry for what you've done, but repent and believe in the gospel. 
Now we, 2,000 years later after this passage, we know what the gospel is. We know that Jesus is going to die on the cross and he's going to rise again on the third day. Now we can confidently say what Jesus is referring to when he says believe in the gospel, and that's true. But bear with me. All of that, that happens 15 chapters later. So we're not there yet in Mark's narrative. So we don't know what the gospel is yet in terms of what Jesus does. Not yet. But if we pretend like we're reading Mark for the very first time, we keep reading after our verse 15, we see that what Mark is telling us, what the gospel is, in fact, he's saying who the gospel is, it's Jesus himself. He's tying it to the person of who Jesus is, not yet on what he has done. That comes later. So right after this thesis statement of verse 15, Jesus, he passes along the Sea of Galilee and he calls four fishermen. And what does he say to them? Follow me. I'm the gospel. In essence, he's saying, believe in me, follow me, turn away from sin, repent and turn to me, Jesus, the gospel. And that's the thesis statement that Jesus proclaims all throughout his ministry, not only Jesus, but also the apostles after him. If you do a survey of the entire book of Acts and you see the message that the apostles proclaim, it's always repent and believe, repent and be baptized into Jesus. Paul, calling people to repent and believe, and he writes even later on in his life, how he counts all things rubbish in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him. Not in his own righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that he may know him. For Paul, there was no possibility of righteousness apart from the person of Christ. No amount of faith mattered unless it was in the person of Jesus. It wasn't the resurrection that saved him. It was the resurrection of Jesus that saved him. Nor does he suffer for suffering's sake, but he suffers to become like Jesus in his death. So do you see, when Jesus says, repent and believe in me and follow me, He's affirming all the truths of Christianity, repentance, forgiveness, salvation, righteousness, justice, and love. Yes and amen. Everything we know and hold dear, but he's also saying you cannot have that without knowing me as your righteousness and your salvation and your love. And it's scary to think when I observe my own life how I can grow to love so much about what Jesus stands for for what he has done for me on all of these biblical concepts. And yet, I can do so for so long without considering the heart of Jesus, the intimate conversations that he invites us to have with him as he whispers things to us and us back to him throughout the day, understanding and feeling the emotions of wrath that he has against my sins, and also understanding the emotions of patience and love that he has to win me from my sin. And I want to have secrets with Jesus. Secrets like how the Apostle Paul said, how he remembers an encounter he had with him, with God, but he doesn't want to tell anyone else because he says, this is between me me and him. You get your own secret, your own experience with God. I don't want to simply know 
that Jesus hates sin and the evils of this world, but I want to know how his heart breaks in response to it. I want to be familiar with how he weeps for the broken and speaks gently to the oppressed and the poor. I don't want to suffer just for suffering's sake because it looks respectable. It looks praiseworthy. I want to suffer because that's what Jesus did. And I want to be like him. I want to serve faithfully. Not because that's the right thing to do as a Christian, as a pastor, or because people think that's a good thing to do. I want to serve faithfully because I know I'm serving him. I don't want to simply know about Jesus. I want to know him. How can we be satisfied and enjoy all that Jesus has done for us, everything that Christianity has to offer, without wanting to know more about the person who paid for it with his life? You know, perhaps let me express this in a better way. I'm going to borrow the words of Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, preaches this. He says this, imagine for a moment that you're living in the age of the Roman Empire and Roman emperors, and now you've been captured by Roman soldiers, and you've been dragged from your home, you're stripped, you're whipped, branded, imprisoned, treated with shameful cruelty, and at last you're appointed to die in the Colosseum with the entire population assembling with delight. Now you stand alone in the middle. You are naked. And now with all of these beasts who now come rushing out towards you, they rush towards you to tear you into pieces. And you tremble. Your joints are loosed. You're paralyzed with fear as you see your end. And now all of a sudden, a deliverer appears. A great unknown hero leaps from among the gazing multitude and he defeats the savage beasts. And after he has done so, this hero, he lifts you up, he smiles into your bloodless face, and he whispers comfort into your ear and bids you to be of good courage, for now you are free. Now here's the question. Do you not think there would arise at once in your heart a desire to know this hero? As the guards take you back into the open street, would not the first question be, who was my deliverer that I may fall at his feet and bless him? The guards, they don't tell you, but instead they take you into a castle where your many wounds are treated and washed. You're clothed in this grand apparel. You're made to sit down before a feast. You eat and eat and you are satisfied. And afterwards, you rest upon the softest bed you have ever experienced. Day after day, week after week, all of your wants are supplied. You live like royalty. Now, if that was the case, wouldn't you be riddled with curiosity? Asking your servants, tell me. Who does all of this? Who is my noble benefactor? For I must know him. And they reply, well, but isn't it enough for you that you've been delivered from the lion and have inherited this castle? Aren't you satisfied with just receiving these things? And you say, no, it is for that very reason I want to know him. And you're told that this benefactor, in fact, 
paid for your freedom with his very life. The castle that you're living in now is in fact the castle of this benefactor. You're informed that this wondrous being has not only done for you what you have seen, but he has done so much more. Deeds of love that you do not see. These which were higher and greater, still proofs of his affection for you. You're told that he was wounded. He was in prison. He was scourged for, for your sake. For he had a love for you so great that death, death itself could not overcome it. And you're informed that even in this very moment, he's so occupied in your interest because he has sworn by himself that wherever he is there, you shall be. That his happiness is yours now. Wouldn't you want to know him? I must know him. For I cannot live without knowing him. His goodness makes me thirst and pant and faint and even die that I may know him. And so brothers and sisters, we praise God for repentance, the gift of forgiveness, the redemption from our sins how it's been accomplished and so on and so on and all of the things that we've grown to love. But let us not be satisfied even with the best of these without believing in him and knowing him and his name is Jesus. Moving on, why is this Jesus worth believing in? Why is he worth knowing? And our second point is because he knows you. (laughs) He's worth following not only because he, he, he takes notice of you, not only because he's just interested in you, but he knows you deeply. I want to point at two evidences that tell me how deeply he knows us. The first, I look at the scene of events here in our passage. You see Jesus, he's calling the first four disciples, Simon and his brother Andrew, and James and his brother John. Now, they become his disciples, and he becomes their rabbi. Now, if we read this back then, or perhaps if you're familiar with traditional Jewish tradition, this will sound very new, because usually rabbis do not go around looking for their disciples. In fact, the disciples, they go and search for that rabbi, and they put in their application. They ask him, please take me on and do whatever it takes to be that person's student. And you would choose that rabbi based on what he stood for, based on his knowledge, because you are after that same body of knowledge and teaching that he can offer you. Now, what we read in Mark is completely different. Jesus, this great rabbi, the ultimate rabbi, and the embodiment of wisdom himself, he goes around and he seeks his disciples. He doesn't go to a body of people passing out applications. He goes to specific people, those whom he know by name. He goes to their specific occupations. And he calls them to follow him. Not his teaching, not simply the wisdom he offers, but himself, the person. And nor is it a generic call, but it's a very specific call, tailored to a specific person for the purposes that he has for you as his specific disciple is great. That's very different in Jewish tradition. That's very different in the world today. Because even today, all the callings in this world, they're very generic. All the other voices, 
calling you to follow after money or follow after love or success or whatever comfort. These voices are never tailored for you as an individual. It's more, if anyone works hard, gets into a good school, make lots of money, they can enjoy life. Or whoever looks attractive in the eyes of the world and you will be loved has no concern for the individual. It's a resounding gong. Just making general announcements and seeing who's going, who it's going to attract without a single care of who you are as a person, but rather what you can do and what you can produce. But Jesus' voice is not like that. It's never generic. But he's specifically calling you by name, as you stand now for you to dedicate your life to him. In John's gospel, we see when Jesus first calls Simon Peter, he calls him by name. And he looks at Simon, he says, you are Simon, son of John? He says, no, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. For Jesus to specifically call you by name means that he already knows you. Take a second to understand what that means. For Jesus to call you by your name, what does that mean? It means that he's already claimed you. In his mind, he's not meeting you for the first time, but he already had you in mind as Ephesians 1 says that even before the foundations of the world, he had you perfectly holy and blameless in mind, worthy of his love and righteousness and honor and all that he has for you. He already guaranteed before even you existed in this world, before you even had a clue that there was this hero who loves you. We see this first evidence. We see another evidence in the way that he calls these disciples. He seeks them out by name. He personally calls them, but he also says, become fishers of men. And what does that tell us? It tells us that in this amazing way, Jesus is acknowledging and recognizing what they are. They're fishermen. They fish. For however they got there, their hearts are set on catching fish and bringing them out of the sea. You see, Jesus doesn't completely dismiss that. He doesn't ignore who they've been all their lives. If he did, he would have said, follow me, drop your poles, because I have far greater things for you than catching stinky fish. (laughs) He doesn't disregard who they are. No, he says, I know who you are. I know what you've been doing your entire life. I'm not going to disregard that. Bring everything you have to the table, even your flaws, even your greatest successes, your identity, your race, your family history. I'm never going to disregard that. But at the same time, he says, I do have something better prepared. I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Because he doesn't leave them be either. He actually does call them for something greater and far more significant than they could ever have dreamed of, fishing men out of darkness, out of darkness of sin and into light. See, in the Bible, the sea, it was symbolic. It was a symbol of disorder and chaos and darkness. 
Nothing was more terrifying than the sea. We see that in Genesis 1, how the sea represented chaos. And God, when he created the world, he made order by bringing land onto the sea. And you can see how terrifying the the oceans can be. Just look at any ocean documentary and the kind of things that live and you find down there. They have the ugliest fish. I think there's one fish called the angler fish. If you ever Google it, you'll be surprised of how ugly it can be. And as one study says, Fishing entails pulling fish out of darkness into light. And it's wonderful imagery here when Jesus says, no longer are you going to pull fish out of darkness into light, but men out of darkness, out of the darkness of sin and death and into this marvelous light. Habakkuk chapter 1 says, God, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, those who have no ruler and you bring them all up with your hook. You drag them out with your net and you gather them and we rejoice and we are glad. So what do these evidences tell us? It tells us that Jesus, he calls us to follow him even while knowing every single thing about you and he knows you completely, everything that you are, all that you aspire, all that you hide from the rest of the world, all of your past guilt and shame, all of your weak points, your identity, yet he still wants you and he still loves you and he beckons you to follow him. This one blogger, uh, he laughed when he writes this and explains it this way. He says, you know, I sometimes joke that the greatest proof of my wife's love for me is that she has seen me naked and yet continues to love me. It's a marriage joke, he says, that I think a lot of husbands can identify with. It's true on a physical level, but it's even more true on just about every other level. My wife is the one I love most in all the world. My wife is the one also I've hurt most in all the world. She has seen me at my best and she has seen me at my worst. She's seen who I am in crisis, in pain, in sorrow, in anger, and in sin. She's also heard me speak words of love even while acting hateful. She has seen me love my children as a father should. She's also seen me exasperate my children as no father should. And yet, she loves me. It's remarkable. Her love means so much because she knows so much. Did you get that? Her love means so much to me because she knows me so much. It's remarkable how much Jesus, the one who created the countless stars in the universe, knows the ins and outs of all that you are, and yet, he loves you and chooses you to follow him. So remarkable. And Jesus' love means so much because, yes, he knows you that much. And so seeing how remarkable this is, Simon and his brother Andrew, James and John, they all leave their nets, they leave their servants, they leave their father Zebedee in the boat and everything behind to follow this Jesus, to get to know this Jesus, the one who already knows everything about them. And the second you make that decision to follow Jesus, guess what? When you make that conscious decision, you're already getting to know him. You're starting to understand what he's about. You see, 
When we read that James and John, they left their father to follow Jesus, to follow this gospel, they're starting to understand a little bit more about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who left his father in heaven to be with you. How he entered into the chaos and darkness of this world to fish you out of sin. And the more you get to know who this Jesus is, that's when you start to understand what he's done for you. And the more you know, the more you become like him, becoming like the one you cherish. And that's very true, even for these four disciples. We know later on that Peter follows Jesus to his death, crucified upside down. James in the book of Acts tells us that he was executed because of his love for Jesus. Legend has it that Andrew was martyred. A spear ran through him while he was praying. We know about John. Because of his love for Jesus, he was exiled, died on an island, the island of Patmos, penning the last words of the New Testament. And along the way, they fished countless of men out of darkness into marvelous light because they got to know this Jesus who first knew them and called them and beckoned them and said, follow me. So if you're here listening today, just know that this Jesus, the Son of God, knows you from the inside out. And instead of cringing at your imperfections or avoiding you completely, he fights through the crowds to seek you out, to call you by name, and he says, follow me. I have so much prepared for you. Get to know this Jesus today. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after we study and listen to God's word, we rightfully respond to him in prayer. I want to invite us to do that personally in your own hearts, by praying to him. Perhaps it's been a while since you actually spoke to him. He invites you to do so now. Let's pray. Let's also take some time to repent and also to believe in Jesus. Repenting for how we've learned to cherish things about him without having a care to actually get to know him. And say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to believe in you. Let's pray like that as we close. Holy Father, we do ask for your forgiveness. We do repent. But not only are we sorry and remorse at the wrongs that we've done, but we want to turn to you where knowing you actually does make a difference in the way that we live our lives. 
as you call us to follow you, help us to be part of something far greater than we could have ever imagined, all because we've been spending our time with you, getting to know this Jesus who knows us so deeply. We thank you for being this kind of God, loving a sinful person like me. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let us sing of his love together.